It's Passover. So I have the picture of the Passover up there. The disciples have been gathered in the upper room, eating and reflecting and celebrating God's deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. This is the biggest and best event of their history. This is a good time. And then Jesus made that shocking announcement that someone was going to betray him. And he didn't stop with that unnerving comment. He started talking about his death. And the disciples did not want to go there. Death is not a topic that many people are comfortable talking about. They're not comfortable with it. Some are very uncomfortable with talking about death. They don't like thinking about it. I was desiring to share the gospel with a co-worker years ago. And I don't remember my lead-in question, but it might have been, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? What I do know is he said, I don't like thinking about dying. And it shut down the conversation because he did not want to talk about it. I don't like to think about dying. Because of this, many people are careful and considerate and sensitive to others regarding the way they talk about death. And we use euphemisms. Instead of being blunt or harsh, we use indirect ways of referring to someone's death. And this is especially when we're talking about it or talking to someone who is in mourning. We might say, he passed away, or she breathed her last breath, or maybe someone would say, he's out of his misery. Her life came to an end. My family faced my mother's death when she was diagnosed with ALS. She was 76 years old and she was given a life expectancy of two to five years. She lived two years with it. She faced her death with dignity from the moment of the diagnosis. She faced it with great faith in God and Jesus and she had no doubt that she was going to see him. She said to me, Elizabeth, are you jealous that I'm going to see Jesus before you are? I'm like, yes. And um, our family knew that death would bring her into the presence of the Lord. We knew that her death would release her body from the disease that had kept her from being able to eat or drink or talk. She would be absent from the body, absent from us. We would miss her. We didn't want to say goodbye to her, but she would be present with the Lord. We knew that her death was approaching. She knew her death was approaching. And the funny story that I want to tell you is that she did not feel the need to use euphemisms. It was five days before she actually died. And it was a Friday and my son and his family were coming to their home and I was there. My father and I were taking care of her in her last three weeks of her life. So my son and his family were on their way and they knew that it would be their last time with her. And on that Friday, my mother wrote because she couldn't talk. So she wrote a little note and she wrote in all caps, I'm going to die tonight. And I took the note because I had to read it. I read it and I laughed and I said, no, you're not. Will is coming today. We'll talk about this tomorrow. 
And so she didn't die that night. We woke up. We had a three-year-old birthday party for little Claire. And then Will and Sarah left on, on Sunday. My mother did die that following Wednesday night. So she knew her death was coming. She had even said to a hospice nurse who said, Goodbye, I'll see you next week. And she couldn't talk, but she just shook her head because she knew that she would not, that hospice nurse would not see her the next week. My comments about death and euphemisms are because that's what Jesus was talking about with his disciples, but he did use euphemisms. He knew his death was coming within 24 hours. He used euphemisms, but they weren't code words. He wasn't trying to be mysterious. The disciples did have enough context and familiarity with this language that he underst- the disciples understood that Jesus was talking about his own death. He had already used this language in a previous conversation, and that's back in John 7, 32 and 36. The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about Jesus and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Jesus therefore said to the religious leaders, to the Jews, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. The Jewish religious leaders heard Jesus. Jesus clearly said, I'm going to him who sent me. They did not believe that he was God, the son, the son of God. They did not believe God, the father was his father and that he was from heaven. So they totally dismissed the euphemism that Jesus used there. And he used the word in Greek. It's recorded as hupago. This is the same word that he used when he was talking to the disciples. Hupago, I go. You can see this definition strictly lead or bring under control. You're doing this yourself. And Jesus indicated to the religious leaders. He was going to God, the father in heaven. So that's why we know this was a euphemism. This was not just go like take a walk from one location to another. I'm going to him who sent me. He said this same verb, hupago, as John recorded it, when he spoke to his disciples in John 13, 33, when he said, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me and As I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. So this word hupago is used again, this euphemism for departing from life and going to God to die. The disciples heard him. They understood what he was saying, but they did not like it. They didn't want it. They were troubled shaken up, stressed about this announcement. I'm sorry for what the disciples had to experience, but I'm thankful for what Jesus said to them in response to their troubledness. Jesus, 
the compassionate, merciful Prince of Peace gave the disciples and us a beautiful, comforting promise. So he said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I know you've studied this passage. You've talked about it. We're going to stay in these verses and walk through them phrase by phrase again now. His comforting promise was, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why could they believe in Jesus also? Because he is God. Why could they trust Jesus? Because he came to show them the Father and to show them the way to the Father. He has been doing that and he will reiterate that in verses 6 and 7 telling Thomas, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way to the Father. So they could trust him. He said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Jesus said he was going away. He told them he was going to the one who sent him and that's his father. They did believe that. The disciples believed that. Jesus connected the dots by bringing up his father's house. God, the father is in heaven. That's where his house is, his dwelling, his home, his residence, his heavenly place of residence and God the Father's house his place of residence has plenty of room for all who trust Jesus as the way you looked up the Greek words for dwelling places it's the Greek word mone and a definition is staying tarrying literally make a staying live or stay with someone And because of that basic meaning, it also comes to mean a dwelling place, an abode, a home, a place. Jesus also used this word in John 14, 23, when he said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus was saying he would come to live. He and the Father would come to live in us. So it's not just a building. You shouldn't think of just a room because you don't have a little room inside you that Jesus is living in. The word mone that's been translated as mansions from the Latin translation of mone and rooms and dwelling places. This word should communicate to you the idea of living with God the Father, living with him, being with him, living in his presence. So in my father's house, in heaven, there's lots of room in the presence of God for you to be with him, to live with him. And the next thing Jesus said was, if it were not so, I would have told you. He's trustworthy. He tells us what we need to know. He tells us like it is. He doesn't trick us. He said, I would have told you if it were any other way. I'm telling you the truth. So you can trust what he says. Now we're going to track Jesus' route, his journey. 
this was the plan of God the Father that Jesus agreed to. Jesus said, for I go. So, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go. Now, this word in Greek is a different word than hupago. It's peruamai, but it is a parallel word, and it also is used as a euphemism for death. And I want you to see what it means basically, and then how it is the euphemism. This word indicates more of a journey, a traveling. Journey, travel, proceed, literally going from one place to another, figuratively, euphemistically, idiomatically, it means to go to one's death, to leave this life. Luke uses this same word in his gospel when he quotes Jesus in the same setting at the Last Supper, at that Passover meal, Luke twenty-two twenty-two, Jesus said, for indeed the Son of Man is going, Peru am I, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So Jesus used this word for going, journeying, traveling to his death at that time. But this idea of it being a journey really helps us because Jesus is not only talking about his death. His, he is talking about dying and rising again and ascending to the Father. That's the full picture of his journey. Why did he take that journey? He told us to prepare a place for you. To prepare a place for us. What had to happen for us to be able to go to that place, the Father's house? Jesus had to make the way. He had to clear the way. And I want to put it like this. He had to go first and get things ready. Now, in the Father's house, the heavenly home of our God, it's already perfect. It's spick and span. Jesus did not need to get out the mop and the broom and make the beds. But the door was closed. Jesus needed to go open the door, unlock the door and open it so that we would be able to enter into the Father's house, his presence. And that's what Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 in your homework tell us that Jesus did. Uh, verse 20, Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He entered into the veil, through the veil, not into the veil, through the veil. The veil refers to the curtain in the tabernacle or the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. So the holy of holies, the very presence of God was closed with a veil, with a curtain. And I'm calling it a door just to give you another um, illustration of that. And that door was locked. No one could go through that veil, through that door, except for the high priest once a year on the day of atonement and with the blood of a sacrifice. But by his death, by Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, he opened the door to the heavenly holy of holies. Some translations have called it the inner place. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, we have confidence to enter the holy place. This is the holy of holies. This is the very presence of God. And how do we have confidence to enter? By the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh.
So we need to understand that preparing a place indicated getting everything ready for us to be able to go to heaven, to enter the presence of God. Preparing meant dying and rising again and ascending to heaven. All of this had to happen. I will say that again. <laughs> we need to remember why this needed to happen. Well, we were born dead and dirty and with a debt. We needed eternal life to enter this eternal heavenly presence of the Lord. We needed cleaning up to be able to go into his presence. And that would come about through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, com Jesus provided the complete package. His death provided the blood that paid the debt we owed. His resurrection gave victory over mortal death. His ascension made the way for the sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell us and give us the eternal life that we needed and the security, the sanct sanctification that we had to have to enter the presence of the Lord. And he's still doing that work of sanctification on us. So once again, the journey of Jesus, his going. This included his death resurrection and ascension. Jesus is going to talk about all three aspects of this journey in these three chapters that we are studying. This is what his message is all about. Now the disciples have heard Jesus is going to him who sent him. So they're thinking he's dying and that's all they really can understand because they do not get that he's going to rise again from the dead. And then the ascension, you know, that's going to happen too. They don't really get that either. So he's going to die. No, we don't want that. We needed that. We know that now. Jesus promised this. Think of them in their distress. Jesus said he's going to die. He's going away. Well, there's good news. And this is what is so good. He promised, if I go, he used that word peruamai again, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a relief. There's some good news. That's what we want to hear. You're coming back, Jesus. You said you're going to die, but you're coming back. Now, did they really hear that part? I'm not sure. Because sometimes you just lock in on one thing. You know, they might have locked in on the bad news. And the rest of this, you know, the Holy Spirit brought it back. And they, they lived it out. But there's good news. He said he was coming back to receive them and receive us to himself. His coming back is not referring to the resurrection. We know that because when he showed up after the resurrection, he did not take his disciples with him to heaven at that point. So what's he talking about? We're going to come back to that in a minute. I want to go over Jesus' journey again one more time. On your handout, you have these phrases. And here are the summary statements. He said, I go. And he's referring to his death, resurrection, and ascension. His disciples couldn't understand all aspects of his departure when he was talking to them about this. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you. So those phrases, preparing a place. He's talking about getting everything ready for our salvation and eternal life. And he did it through his death and resurrection and ascension. And then he said, I will come again and receive you to myself. So that's his return. He's coming back. 
And then the best part, that where I am, there you may be also. How did Jesus start this out? Let not your heart be troubled. And don't forget, he said this part. So you're going to be with me always. This is the best part, being with Jesus. It is only for those who trust him, believe in God, believe in him. Now I want to go and consider Jesus coming again and receiving us to himself. You may already know that there is a passage in the New Testament that has several parallels to Jesus' declarations that we've been looking at. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is about the rapture, the gathering of the saints to Jesus. This is about Jesus coming again, coming for his saints, not about his coming to earth to reign as king for a thousand years. The rapture, this gathering is when he comes to get believers. And Paul explains this as a comfort to those who have experienced the death of a fellow believer. So even the setting of Paul's comments here are related to death and people who are sorrowing over believers' deaths. Paul uses euphemisms for death, just like Jesus did. He refers to death as sleep, and I want to read this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's the euphemism. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. He's used this euphemism three times. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now he says it plainly. So we know what this euphemism is about. The dead in Christ. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Doctors Tim LaHaye and Dr. Tommy Ice explain the parallels between John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And they quote Dr. J.B. Smith, who was a Mennonite commentator. And he, he matched up, and I've given you his matching parallels on your handout. He said, the words or phrases are almost an exact parallel. They follow one another in both passages in exactly the same order. Only the righteous are dealt with in each case. There is not a single irregularity in the progression of the words from the first to the last. Both columns take the believer from the troubles of earth to the glories of heaven. And I love that phrase. And that's what we see here from the troubles of earth, troubled hearts, sorrowful hearts to the glories of heaven where Jesus is. So you see, John, Jesus is quoted And Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Paul said, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. Paul said, you believe that Jesus died and rose again and God will bring with him those who sleep. So we have those two similar 
statements. Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. So the word of Jesus. And then Paul says to you by the word of the Lord. So they're making these trustworthy statements. Jesus said, I will come again. Paul referred to the coming of the Lord. Jesus said, I will receive you to myself. Paul says that uh, those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then Jesus said that where I am, you may be also. Paul says, thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Those are the parallels. Now I want to go through the phrases in John 14, 1, 2, and 3 that we've been looking at and continue to make parallels. Stay on the front page of your handout for this. And then we'll get to the chart. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. His going was his death, resurrection, and ascension. Preparing a place for you is making the way for us to go to heaven. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, and that tells us that Jesus is there now because he went and he prepared a place. So he's in heaven now. And he said, I will come again. Where's he coming from? He's coming from heaven. That's his return for his saints. And that's what's described in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. When he says, I will receive you to myself. That's when the dead in Christ are raised and those who are alive in Christ on the earth are caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. And then the, the conclusion of both of these passages, Jesus says that where I am, you may be also. Paul concludes, caught up together with all the saints and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So these are the parallels between the two passages. And there's one more parallel that I want to share with you now. This is about Jesus' journey as the bridegroom. In John 14, 1 through 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we see the stages of the biblical Jewish wedding customs. They correspond to these stages. And it's appropriate to look at this because the church is called the bride of Christ. So first we have the betrothal and the groom's father pays the price of the bride. And that's what happened. God, the father paid the price by giving his son. John three sixteen tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus, the bridegroom, submitted to God the Father's plan. So he paid the price as well himself with his life. Ephesians 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The next part of the wedding custom was the preparation. And that's when the groom would go prepare a place at his father's house. And he's separated from his bride-to-be. And while there is this time of preparation going on, the bride is preparing herself for her marriage to the groom. This time of waiting lasted at least a year to make sure that nine months passed, to make sure that there was no baby born before the wedding. And that showed that she was a virgin because if she had a baby, then it would show that she had been committing immorality. 
the parallel for the church is that this time while we are waiting for Christ's return is a time of sanctification for us, a time of purifying ourselves, letting the Holy Spirit work on us, sanctify us. And we see this as Jesus working this out in us, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Well, time's up. Ready for the groom to go get her bride. This is called the fetching of the bride. Oh, I'm sorry that I didn't have that switched to you. The preparation was the groom preparing a place at his father's house and the bride preparing herself. And then we have the fetching of the bride. The groom would go from his father's home to the bride's home to take her back to his father's home. There would be a grand procession from the bride's home back to the father's home. This custom is referred to in Matthew 25, 1 through 5. So I'm not looking at the lesson on the kingdom of heaven here. I'm just looking at the event that is used in this illustration. Matthew 25, 1, the kingdom of heaven will be like the ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five were foolish, five were sensible. The foolish took their lamps but didn't take oil with them. Sensible ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. Verse 5, since the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Verse 6, in the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here's the groom. Come out to meet him. So the wedding party is waiting for the groom. They're waiting for the groom. He's coming. And then he finally came. The fetching of the bride of Christ will be accomplished by the rapture. And then there's the marriage ceremony. This is between the groom and his bride. And in the Jewish wedding custom, it would take place at the groom's father's house. And there would be a few guests there. Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And we see that happening in heaven. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. After the marriage ceremony would be the marriage feast. That's another event. And many guests were invited. Many, many guests were invited. This was a really big deal. The marriage feast could last seven days. And maybe that's why they ran out of wine at the wedding that Jesus attended with his disciples. That feast in Cana. Now let's look at everything side by side on your chart on the back marriage feast seven days. I'm going to go row by row and talk through this and I'll just go ahead and well you can see the very first row there is nothing in the Jewish wedding customs that's blank on purpose so Jesus said let not your heart be troubled and Paul said don't sorrow as those who have no hope. The next row Next two rows, I want to take those together. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. Paul said, believe that Jesus died and rose again, and God will bring with him those who sleep. This is referring to the betrothal, because in these statements, we are to believe that 
We have been paid for. We have been bought with the blood of Jesus. God and Jesus paid the bride price. So those two rows are about the betrothal. The fourth row, John 14, 2, Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. And Paul said, I say to you by the word of the Lord. So they are making a trustworthy declaration. This is also part of the betrothal. It is a promise. A promise, the engagement. Going to keep their word. Here's the plan. The next row, John 14, 2, Jesus said, I go. And that's the euphemism for his death. And this is where it's referring to his journey. And Paul said, Jesus died and rose again. So there's the parallel. And this also is the betrothal, again, referring to Jesus' death, the price that was paid for his bride, the church. Why did Jesus go? To prepare a place for us. Jesus went, and that means he is in heaven now. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 lets us know that. And this matches the time of preparation in the Jewish wedding customs. Jesus made the preparation and he is waiting for his father to send him to get his bride. So from where we sit now, if Jesus were talking about this to us now, he could put these terms in past tense. I went. And I prepared a place for you. He's done it. And he said in John 14, 3, he would come again. And Paul revealed this, the coming of the Lord when he descends from heaven with a shout. And this is the fetching of the bride rapture. Jesus said he would come to receive us to himself. And Paul explained it. The dead in Christ would rise first. The alive will be caught up in the clouds. Again, this is the gathering of the saints, the gathering of the church, the procession of the bride from earth to the father's home with the bridegroom. So that's also the fetching of the bride. And then the last row from John 14, 3, Jesus said, why did all this happen? So that... Where I am, you may be also. We will meet the Lord in the air and always be with him from that moment on. We will enjoy the marriage ceremony at the father's house. And then the last row of your charts, you have the marriage feast. This is in the millennial kingdom at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And what a grand wedding reception that is going to be a wedding feast that will go on. It's going to last more than seven days. I bet it will have the Old Testament saints who are resurrected. They'll come to the party. It will have the tribulation martyrs resurrected to their glorious bodies and they'll come to the feast the party we'll have the tribulation believers the 144,000 Jews who were sealed all those who come to Christ during those seven years of tribulation who get to walk into the millennial kingdom they get to be a part of this grand wonderful marriage feast one big happy party Why did Jesus give us this information? The disciples were distraught about his death. 
But he said, let not your heart be troubled. Death brings grief to us. There is a separation. There is grief. But Jesus gave us hope because he did it all. He lives now. After my mother died, the hymn, Because He Lives, became very precious. Not just because of the truth of it, but there is a stanza that I felt like I saw her go through. So I want to remind you of the words of this hymn. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Right now, we take this truth and live our lives now because of what he's done. But here's the stanza that I saw my mother experience. One day I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. There's a war going on at death. But then as death gives way to victory... Hallelujah, it's the best thing. I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he lives. The lights of glory, that is what is ahead for us. That's why our hearts don't need to be troubled because we are going to Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in him. There is such great hope in him. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We praise you that everything about you and around you is holy, 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 and glorious, and bright, and clean, and ready. And I thank you that when we are absent from this body on earth, we are with you in your glorious presence. Thank you, Jesus, that you opened the door and made the way. And I thank you for the truths that you declared that are trustworthy. Thank you that you kept every word. You did everything. You fulfilled every command. You you fulfilled your father's plan and you did it for us. You love us. May we walk in this truth May our lives shine with the hope that we have. Help us to talk about this with others, with our other um, brothers and sisters in Christ and with those who don't know you. Give us the words, whether it's a euphemism or a direct statement. And please open the eyes of those who do not know you that they may have this hope. You're worth it. Thank you for what you did for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.